Ephesians chapter 5, you know, we learn most things by watching other people. Much of what we know, much of what we do, we learn from examples. could be walking, tying your shoe, playing sports, cooking, even being a parent. You watch someone else, at least got the principles, the concepts by watching someone else. There's probably one thing that we do well that we didn't need an example of, and that's sin. We, we pretty much knew how to do that from the beginning and didn't have any need for anybody to give us an example on how to do it. If you were the younger child, like I was the youngest, I had three good examples of how to get away with sin, or better yet, how to get caught, so therefore how to get away with sin. Most of us, or some of us, had good examples to learn from, and some of us had really bad examples to learn from. I had a little bit of both, the good and the bad examples. Um, I had a a stepdad, and I say a stepdad because I had multiple ones, but I had a stepdad at one particular time who was not a very good example on, on eating or food because it didn't matter what we were having, he would, he would mix everything together on a plate and then cover everything with Tabasco sauce. So to him, tacos and tuna tasted exactly the same. So didn't matter. Uh, we learn other things. We even learn how to speak by listening to other people. That's why there's there's regional accents. Unless you're from the West and you don't have an accent. <laughs> Apparently everybody else has one. We don't have one. But everybody thinks everybody else has an accent because they learn to speak from somebody else. We also learn to live out our faith by watching others. Some of us had good examples. Some of us had bad examples. Some of us had examples, witnessed their living out of their faith, and they were confused and a wishy-washy kind of faith, and and they they didn't portray genuine faith. Uh, my dad, until he died, claimed to be a Christian, though there was no evidence of it, and he couldn't tell me why he was a Christian. And when I was a kid, before my parents got divorced, my dad never went to church except on Easter and Sun and uh, Christmas, and then that even began to wane. So I grew up thinking that church was for women and children. And once you hit a certain age as a uh, man, you didn't have to go to church anymore. There was no point in it anymore. Uh, some of us learned those kinds of things. Some of you are first-generation Christians. You're the first person in your family to come to saving faith. So you had no example, in your home family at least, to to see we have people in our church that have been saved out of idolatry, saved out of cults, saved out, saved out of false religions, agnosticism, and even atheism. Well, that was the case in the church at Ephesus. Almost everybody in the church at Ephesus at the time Paul's writing this letter is a first generation Christian. They had, they had not seen it lived out anywhere, and there, it's not like there were churches or Christian churches in Ephesus. There was only one. And if you didn't like the music, you had to go there anyway. So it it was the only church. And they didn't see what it was to live out their faith. They didn't have examples to draw on that they could witness on a regular basis. I was fortunate as a, uh, as a teenager, you know, although although I went to church as a, a kid, like I mentioned, when after my parents got divorced, I was about seven, we stopped going to church completely. And I didn't go back and get until I was in high school. And 
Fortunately, God just kind of plugged me in and I met some people and I had some men that were examples to me there. And I got to see them live out their faith and it had a tremendous impact on me. Paul wants the Christians in Ephesus to understand that they do have examples, that there are people that they can look to. Most of them had been saved out of idol worship. In fact, so many people had been saved out of idol worship in Ephesus that the idol workers union got together and they were really concerned that they were all going to go out of business if something didn't change. They were saved, the Christians there were saved out of pagan rituals, eating meat sacrificed to idols and and temple prostitution and all the wickedness that went along there in Ephesus and other Asian cities. So Paul sets out to explain to them what God has done and then how they are to live in light of what God has done. The book of Ephesians is easily divided into two sections. It's six chapters long. The first three chapters are what God has done for us, the grace He's shown to us. And the last three chapters, four, five, and six, are what we are to do as a result of that. How we are to live. We were once dead in our sins. In the first three chapters we see that. But God loved us in spite of our sins and saved us by grace. We had no hope in the world prior to our relationship with God, but God loved us and purchased us with the blood of Jesus Christ. He made us then part of the church so we can know how to to live the way that he wants us to. We can uh, understand and experience the magnitude of the love that God has for us. After explaining the theology, then Paul moves to the outworking of our salvation Again, chapters 1 through 3, what happened to us. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, how those truths determine how we live. In fact, chapter 4, verse 1, the beginning of the second section, begins with that word, therefore. He says, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. After three chapters of what God has done to bring us to saving faith, he begins with the therefore, which refers back to the previous three chapters. I implore you to walk in a manner worthy, or a worthy manner. I want you to notice again that word, therefore. It's very important. It's not just a throwaway word. It's an important word that refers back to what he's just said. Points back to the first three chapters. But immediately, as we move into the application of the theology, we're struck with this idea that there is a standard by which we are to live. It's not just, in other words, we're not just saved to get our our ticket into heaven and uh, to be uh, uh, exempt from hell. There's more to it than that. There's more to the Christian faith than that. The the commands are 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 saturate chapters four, five, and the first half of chapter six. The opening command here in chapter 4, verse 1, is all-encompassing. He's going to give the specifics from there on out, but the first verse is just encompassing to walk in a worthy manner. To walk is, is a euphemism for your lifestyle, your manner of life, how you live. 
Your relationship to, to God is to be reflected in how you live. In how you live right here, right now. How you live out your life today. How you live it out tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Paul will speak of how we are to live in the world, how we're to live in the church, how we're to live in our families, how we're to live on the job. And we'll see, if we were to walk through the entire second half of the book, we would see that this worthy walk, this walking in a manner worthy, is all about our relationships. So all about how we get along with one another, how we deal with enemies, how we deal with family, how we deal with superiors. It's all about relationships. The worthy manner, according to chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, requires humility, requires a gentle spirit, requires patience and tolerance towards one another. We are to work to preserve peace and unity within the body. In verses 4 through 16, we are told that we are to use the gifts that God has given its members to build up one another in love. And then in chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, we're to be careful that we don't live like unbelievers. We have been transformed in Christ and that's to be reflected in the way that we live. We can no longer live like we used to live before we were saved. The focus must be on righteousness and holiness. In chapter 4, verses 25 through 32, again, we must stop doing the things that unbelievers do. There should be a distinct difference in the lifestyle of a Christian versus a non-Christian. It should be obvious in the way that Christians live and the way that they respond to one another that we are different, that we've been transformed, that there's a difference in our priorities, there's a difference in our relationships. We're supposed to live a life in such a way that others will come to us and say, tell me the reason of the hope that is in you. Paul makes it clear that the worthy walk requires a certain type of relationship with other people. After telling us how not to walk in chapter 4, Paul's going to tell us how to walk in chapter 5. In fact, he reverts back to that metaphor for walking. Look at chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, which will be our text this morning. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Knowing that many Christians in Ephesus and the many more who would read this letter did not have good examples to follow of what it means to live out their faith, he is saying, here is prime examples. You are to imitate your father and you're to imitate the son. The father and the son have showed us how to live out our faith. Specifically, the father and the son have showed us how to love one another. So we'll start with verse 1. Walking in love requires us to forgive one another. Walking in love requires us to forgive one another. Verse 1 again begins with, therefore. 
Therefore, be imitators of God. The therefore points back to chapter 4. Specifically, it points back to chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God. So he's speaking specifically of this forgiveness that we have experienced in God. So to walk in love requires us to forgive one another. You are to imitate God in this area of forgiveness. Now certainly when we forgive people, it's not a judicial forgiveness like it is with God. We are guilty before God, before we come to saving faith in Christ. And we, as a result of that guilt, we are condemned to hell. But God forgives our sin and he wipes it out as if it never happened, declares us innocent. And we are transferred into his kingdom as children of God. Now, we don't forgive like that in that way. It's not a judicial forgiveness, but it is a loving thing. It is a complete thing like God does for us. Therefore, again, connects back. If you go back to verse 17 of chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 17, he says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer, just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. And he goes through this passage here until it gives us the negative side. Don't walk like this. In fact, he'll trend, he'll give us both sides. Don't do this, rather do this. Don't do this, rather do this. If you wanted to... Start in verse 25. Therefore lay aside all falsehood. Speak truth, each one with uh, of you with his neighbor. In other words, stop lying to each other, rather speak the truth. If we kept going through, we'd say don't be angry because that opens the door for the devil. Don't steal, rather work hard to meet the needs of others. Don't use corrupt speech, rather use speech that edifies. Don't grieve the spirit, rather put away bitterness, anger, wrath, clamor, slander, and malice. I want you to see that briefly. Do not grieve the spirit, rather put away bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and malice. Those are the things that grieve the Holy Spirit. And those are all relational things. Anger and bitterness and wrath and clamor and malice, those are all relational things. When somebody has offended you or you perceive that they have offended you and you're upset with them, that quenches the Holy Spirit, grieves the Holy Spirit. And then he reverts back to the positive in verse 32, as we mentioned, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God has forgiven you. In other words, imitate God. Imitate God. The word, the Greek word used for imitate is mimetai, and it's where we get our word mimic. You literally mimic God. Not make fun of God, you mimic God. You do what God does. We learn how to live by watching other examples, and we are to learn how to love one another by watching the example that God has given for us. Specifically in this area of forgiveness. The standard by which we are to forgive one another is the way that we've been forgiven by God. Now think about that for a moment. The standard by which we are to forgive one another is the same standard by which God forgives us. And he does that freely. And he does that completely. And he does that because he loves We're pretty good at holding a grudge. 
We're pretty good at holding on to anger and bitterness and wrath and clamor and malice. Aren't you glad God doesn't do that to you? That in God's love for you, He does not hold on to that bitterness, that anger. That He doesn't pour out His wrath just because He can. Jesus spoke of the extent of God's forgiveness in Matthew 18 when he, when Peter came up to, to Jesus and asked him, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? And Peter thinks he's being really magnanimous. And Jesus said, I do not say to you to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And he wasn't giving him a number. He wasn't saying 490 times. And by the way, if he was, You're keeping a ledger. Okay, let me see. That was 492. You don't understand forgiveness. Because forgiveness doesn't keep a record. We read that in in, in 1 Corinthians 13 about love. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. In premarital counseling, when we talk about people, we talk about issues that people are going to have and and they're going to argue. Some of these young couples get really get concerned you're going to you're going to disagree over things what really yes because you're sinners you're going to so we try to give them the tools to combat those things and uh that you're going to disagree and we even talk about fighting the good fight uh, you're going to have arguments and you want to have if you're since you're going to have them let's make them at least productive and meaningful and part of that is you can't pull up old things and beat them about the head and shoulders with something that they did a year ago. If you've already dealt with those things, they should be dealt with. They're gone. That's what forgiveness really is. After saying to Peter, you're to forgive 70 times 7, Jesus gave the parable uh, about forgiveness of this uh, man who owed an amount to a king he could never repay. And the king was going to have him thrown into debtor's prison because he had the right to do so, and the man, the servant fell on his face before the king and begged for mercy, and the king said, fine, I'll forgive the debt. Then that servant went out and found somebody that owed him a significantly less amount, something that could be paid back, and he grabbed him by the throat and said, I want my money now, and the guy said, fell on his knees before the other servant said, have mercy on me and I'll pay you back when I can. And that man said, that's not good enough. And had him thrown in debtor's prison. And the king found out he was angry with that servant and said, I forgave you because you asked me. You should have done the same thing. In fact, Jesus would say a similar thing in the Sermon on the Mount when asked to how to pray. Jesus gave what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. And in that, he says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And after the Lord's Prayer is over, he Jesus goes back to that area of forgiveness and says, if you don't forgive people when they sin against you, then I won't forgive you, and if or my Father won't forgive you. And if you do forgive them, then my Father will forgive you. This is how important this area is in the life of the believer. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14 says, So as those who have been chosen by God, that's Christians, holy and beloved... Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, 
bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. I want you to notice in in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and following, he says, have compassion. He doesn't expand on that. He just gives us the word. Kindness, he doesn't expand on it, just gives us the word. Humility, doesn't expand on it. Gentleness, doesn't expand on it. Patience, doesn't expand on it. Bearing with one another, he doesn't even expand on it. Then he says, and forgiving each other, and he expands on it with a couple of other phrases. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Obviously, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit and the inspiration of Scripture, Paul understands, as Jesus did, that forgiveness is a huge issue in the life of people. Now, you can just say, hey, be kind to one another. Okay, you don't have to define it. It's okay. Love one another. Okay, well, that's defined throughout the Scripture. Be gentle. Okay. Show humility. Okay, all right. Forgive. Okay, no, 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 you don't get it. Forgive the way God forgives you. That's what you're supposed to do. Takes it to a whole new level of of what we tend to think of as forgiveness. We sometimes tend to think of forgiveness as, all right, I'm not going to slap you next time I see you. But I'm not going to trust you either. And I'm not going to pay you any mind either, and I'm not going to talk to you either. Ephesians 5, verse 1 again, Therefore be imitators of God. Do what God has done. Forgive the way God forgives you. And then he qualifies that by saying, as beloved children. As beloved children. Imitate God as beloved children. Don't imitate God the way Satan did. Satan wanted to be like God. He wanted to take God's place. He wanted to make the decisions that God alone is allowed to make. We're not to imitate God in that way. We're not to play God. Think of that in terms of forgiveness. I will never forgive you. That's playing God. That's what, that's being like Satan. I want to be God. I want to make the decisions. I want to decide who deserves forgiveness and who doesn't. None of us deserve forgiveness. Let's make it clear. No one deserves forgiveness. But God doesn't forgive based on what we deserve. It's based in love. We are to imitate God as a beloved child who admires his or her father. My dad worked with tools. He was a millwright. He would take apart big machines and fix them and put them back together. And he loved tools. And I learned, I wanted to learn how to use tools. I wanted to know how to use tools. I had no idea that there's, with a, with an adjustable wrench, because it's not a crescent wrench, that's a brand. Uh, with an adjustable wrench, there's a, you have to hold it this way or you have to turn it, depending on which way. It, so there's different things I didn't even know at the time. And I learned some respect for tools. 
That was my dad. And my dad was uh, in the Korean War. So when my friends and I, that was the era I grew up in, my our parents were in Korea. Or, or uh, some my other friends' parents may have been in Vietnam as well. So when we get together and play, we would always play soldier. And and I, I got to be G.I. Joe because that was my dad's name, was Joe. So I got to be G.I. Joe. So We are to... We are to love the things that our Father loves and imitate Him in those areas. And our Heavenly Father loves when we have relationships that are God-honoring and holy and when we forgive one another. We are to mimic our Heavenly Father in the way He loves and the way He forgives. We are to do everything we can to be like Him. That means putting off the things that keep us from being like Him and putting on the things that make us more like Him. Walking in love requires us to forgive one another and our Father constantly shows us how to do that. In fact, in our own lives on a regular basis, if daily if not more often, our Father shows us what it means to forgive and how He forgives us. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Number two, walking in love requires us to sacrifice ourselves. Walking in love requires us to sacrifice ourselves. Look at verse two. And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. The command to walk here in verse 2 is what we call a present active command. That means it's ongoing. It happens right now. It's continual. It's not something that we decided some point in the past. And that is a one-time decision. It's an ongoing, constant decision. We are to constantly be walking in love. To walk in love is to walk in that more excellent way. At the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12... Paul was talking about gifts that are given to the church. And he said there's there's faith. Uh, I, my mind just went blank. And love. Never mind. Uh, hope. Thank you. Thank you. I was waiting for somebody to tell, help dig me out of this hole I just dug myself into. There's faith, hope, and love. And he said, but the greatest of these is love. And there's a more excellent way. And behold, I'll show you the more excellent way. And then he jumps into chapter 13, which is all about love. We are to walk in a manner of life in the way that we love one another in the same way that Christ loves us. This is what Jesus taught in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another. Oh, we've heard those truths so many times and we've heard it specifically for almost the last six months, last five months now. That it can sometimes just go in one ear and out the other. You love one another the way I have loved you. He would later say in that same, in that same period of time in John 15, 9, just as the Father has loved me, I also love you. Abide in my love. Jesus is saying, listen, I learned, I, I love you the way my Father loves me. I learned it from my Father. You now need to learn it from me, he's saying. 
Just as Paul is saying, follow the example of the Father and the example of the Son, Jesus said, I've done the, I've done the same thing. I modeled it for you there. I'm following the example of my Father. You follow my example. You walk in love just as Christ also loved you. Just as Christ also loved you is both the reason and the pattern for the relationship we're to have with one another. We are to love one another because Christ loves us. And we are to love one another how Christ loves us. It's the reason and the pattern. Just as Christ loved us. Do you think about the love of Christ? Do you think about the love that Christ has for you? Do you think about it often? The fact that he loves us so much he'll never leave us or forsake us. He's abundantly gracious and merciful to us because he loves us. He's kind. He's patient. The older I get, the more patient God is with me. It's amazing. The older I get, the less patience I have. Therefore, the more patience God has. You ever think about the fact that God's love for you is unconditional? God never says to his children, I'll love you if, or I'll love you when. You ever heard a parent say that to their child? If you go clean your room, I'll love you. If you do what mommy says, I'll love you. I've heard that just, it's terrible. Because you're teaching your child, there's things you can do to earn my love, and there's things you can do to throw away my love. If you don't listen to me, I won't love you. He loves us so much that he willingly forgives all of our sin. He loves us so much that he sacrificed himself. See it there in verse 2. And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. He gave himself up. This started in heaven. From eternity past, when Jesus agreed to be the sacrifice for the sins of men. And then at the incarnation, he stands up from his place of honor in heaven and and voluntarily lays aside the use of his divine attributes and takes upon himself the form of human flesh and veils the glory in that human flesh. Humbles himself. Becomes obedient to the point of death on the cross. Takes on himself the limitations and vulnerability of human flesh. He gave himself up. as an offering and a sacrifice to God. The words offering and sacrifice here are nearly synonymous. They refer to gifts that are, that we give to God or gifts that are given to God. The main difference between the two words, offering and sacrifice, is an offering was a voluntary expression of gratitude given to God. That's what we do today. You don't, uh, your, your giving to the Lord's work may be sacrificial for you, it may hurt you some, but we offer them voluntarily. 
Uh, you're not to give under compulsion. If, you know, somebody puts a gun to your head and says you need to give and uh, or some bad thing's going to happen to you. We don't send out chain letters about giving. You know, you know, so-and-so didn't give and their cat burned down. And <laughs> Offering is a voluntary expression of gratitude. Sacrifice is also a gift, but it requires death. Offerings don't require death. Sacrifice requires death. An offering was often fruit or wheat or bread or oil or something that's produced by the fields, by the ground, by the trees. Sacrifices are lamb, goat, bull, ox, birds. These are things that have to die. Death is the ultimate expression of love. Sacrifice. That is, John chapter 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this one lay down his life for his friends. The greatest expression of love is to sacrifice ourselves. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The connection between the sacrifice and love is, is undeniable. First John chapter 3 verse 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Jesus showed us his love through his sacrifice. That's how we show love to others. That's how we show love to God. That's Romans chapter 12, verse 1. After 11 chapters of theology, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We sacrifice ourselves to God as a sign of our love for Him. And we sacrifice for one another as a sign of love for one another. This was well-pleasing to God. You want to be pleasing to God? I hope you do. It requires self-sacrifice. In Leviticus chapters 1 through 5, we are described to us five offerings and sacrifices given to God. There's the burnt offering. This was atonement for sin in general, and it was needed in order to approach God. So it required a, a perfect bull, sheep, goat, or dove that was killed and then burnt completely on the altar. The next is the grain offering, and that's a thanksgiving offering. It's a dedication offering. I'm going to dedicate myself to God. I'm giving thanks to God. So I bring a grain offering, and that was flour or some other kind of grain. The third was the peace offering, and that's an offering that was given out of gratitude to God for something that he's blessed you with, something God has done for you. You want to show gratitude, or you just want fellowship with God. This required a perfect bull, sheep, or goat. There was the sin offering, that is for unintentional sin. I didn't, I sinned against somebody, but I didn't do it out of malice. That required a perfect bull or goat. And then there was the guilt offering, that's for specific sin. And that required a perfect lamb, a perfect ram. The burnt offering, the grain offering, and the peace offering are all said to be a soothing aroma or a pleasing aroma to God. And they are pleasing to God because they are all voluntary. 
And they're all about fellowship with God. The sin offering and the guilt offering were required. I mean, that was, you had to do that. You didn't have to do the other ones. You could choose to do the other ones. The death of Jesus was a fragrant aroma to God. Now, it actually meets the criteria for all of the offerings, including the sin offering, the guilt offering, but it was voluntary. Jesus said, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. He voluntarily sacrificed himself to make it possible for us to have fellowship with God. He did it also in obedience to the Father, doing the will of the Father. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. God was pleased to use his son as an offering here. It's a guilt offering. If Jesus would voluntarily do it, which he did. All of these things combined to show us that that love is the epitome of the virtues that please God. The thing that God finds appealing about us, the things that cause us to our lives to be a fragrant aroma, a pleasing aroma to God, is when we love one another enough to sacrifice for one another. When we forgive as our Father has forgiven us and we sacrifice like Jesus sacrificed, that's well-pleasing to our Father. That's a fragrant aroma to him. He looks at our life and says, that's what I want. That pleases me. I find that very appealing. If we sincerely love God and others, we will actively work at putting off the vices that are found in chapter 4 and work at implementing the Virtues that are found in chapters 5 and 6. And this is well pleasing to God. Because sacrifice pleases Him. Sacrifice pleases God because sacrifice is part of the nature of God. So when we sacrifice ourselves for our brothers and sisters, it pleases God because it imitates God. It mimics God. It's, which is exactly what Paul tells us to do. Imitate God. Imitate God by forgiving. Imitate God by sacrificing. And when we do that, God is pleased because we are trying to be like Him. We are practicing godliness. You can't practice it without forgiving. You can't practice godliness without sacrifice. It's impossible. While we imitate God, we are, by default, imitating Christ, or vice versa. When we imitate Christ, we are, by default, imitating God. And when we're imitating our Father, imitating Christ, we have to forgive. And we have to give ourselves while we willingly sacrifice those things that hinder fellowship with one another, 
It demonstrates not only love for them, but our love for God. Walking in love requires us to sacrifice ourselves. And Jesus showed us how to do that. He showed us what that means. So regardless of what kind of family you grew up in, regardless of what you were saved out of, we all have, those of us who know the Lord, all of us have perfect example of what it means to forgive, perfect example of what it means to sacrifice. And these are things that are repeated throughout the scripture so that we can be well-pleasing to our Father. The Father and the Son have showed us what it means to love one another. God is all about our relationships, not only with himself, but with one another. And you can't have one without the other. You can't have a right relationship with God the Father and God the Son and not have right relationships with one another. They go hand in hand. Gotta have them. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you've given us an example to follow. That, Father, we can know what it means to forgive and we can know what it means to love. We can know what it means to sacrifice because you've shown us these things. Father, while we are so grateful for our salvation and the forgiveness that we have, uh, Father, may we not forget that that's not just our ticket into heaven. It is a reflection on the way we are to live and the way we're to treat one another. And Father, you you did not qualify what we are to forgive and what we aren't to for, are not to forgive, and who are to love and who are not to love. And Father, you didn't insinuate that our offenses, those who have offended us, is no big deal. But Father, as you have forgiven real offenses, we are to forgive real offenses. As you forgive significant sin against you, we are to forgive significant sin against us. And Father, we confess that this is hard. This is difficult for us to do. There are those we want to have relationships with and those we don't. And Father, we pray that we would have the mind and the heart of Christ in every relationship. And Father, those we love the most often hurt us, hurt us the worst. And we need your spirit. We need your grace, your mercy to come alongside us that we'll put off the anger and the wrath and the malice, the clamor, the evil speaking, and we'll put on Christ. We'll put on that spirit of forgiveness and grace and mercy that you so abundantly show us. And Father, we need your help. We can't do it in our flesh. We can't sustain it in our flesh. We need Christ to do that work. And Father, may you glorify yourself in transforming us into a loving, forgiving people. 
May our lives be so different from this world in our relationships with you and our relationships with one another that others see it and ask us for a reason of the hope that is in us. And Father, again, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, may you be pleased to open up their eyes to the truth that you love and you forgive those who will call upon your name, confess their sins to you, receive Jesus Christ as Lord. Father, we pray for your spirit to move, to work in your children. May we realize that we have still a long way to go, that we are not, we are not complete in Christ until we are with you. And Father, may we continue to strive to be obedient to your word, to be transformed by the work of the Spirit in our life. Father, we pray that you'll bless our time of communion. May it glorify you as we commemorate the death of Christ until you come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.